Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it is pleased as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we have gathered here today to worship you in order that we might receive life from you. And so now as you speak to us in this passage and through um, the words of my mouth, we pray um, that we would receive the life that is on offer to us in Jesus Christ, that we would receive your mercy in faith. We believe, but we ask that you would help us in our unbelief that we might walk before you in ways that please you, that we might live into the callings that you've placed upon our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, we're obviously uh, beginning a series today on the book of Jonah. We're going to look at this book for about seven weeks up until the season of Advent. And I know that this story is likely familiar to most of you. I'm sure all of you have heard of this story and know some of the key parts of this story. But my guess is that most of us are not that familiar with the message of the book overall. And we know about the fish and, and Jonah being swallowed. And maybe you are really knowledgeable and you know about the vine later on in the book that is eaten up by the worm. But um, what is the message of this bizarre book? We'll, we'll be looking at that over the coming weeks. It is a strange book. Um, people have raised a lot of questions about the fact that there's a fish swallowing someone and this person is surviving three days in the belly of the fish. What is that about? Is it a fish? Is it a whale? Um, he's, he lives through this. Is that real? Um, and then, you know, there's this vine that grows up and seemingly in a day and then withers just as fast. How is that possible? And so people raise all sorts of questions about whether this is an allegory or a parable or if this is actual history. And uh, I just want to say up front that um, there is no reason in my mind to doubt that this is um, a true telling of something that actually happened in the life of this man, Jonah, in the, in the life of Israel, just because there are this, um, these miraculous events. Um, you know, if, if you're here, we, we are Christians, we believe in miracles. We believe in a big miracle that Jesus rose from the dead. So he was in in the, the belly of death, so to speak, for three days and rose again. So we believe God works in these sort of bizarre ways at times. And so we're going to be studying this um, not just as a parable, although it does have an important message, an interesting structure to bring out this message, but we believe this is actual history. Um, and part of the reason for that is that Jesus seems to think so too. In the Gospels, he alludes to Jonah and to Jonah's death, you know, being thrown overboard, uh, and that his prophetic ministry, this sign of, of judgment, um, all of these things he alludes to. And so uh, that seems to me to, to be a good reason to believe this actually took place. And yet we can recognize in this book, there's a highly stylized telling of this, um, this event that took place in Jonah's life. There's kind of two parts to this book. Chapter one and two are one cycle where Jonah hears the word of the Lord and then responds to that. And uh, that takes him to sort of an end uh, where he is, is brought back onto dry land. And then we see another cycle where Jonah receives the word of the Lord again. And then he goes on a journey and, and it sort of ends with a big question. But there's a, a lot of parallels between chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And we're going to highlight those as we go along so we can discern what this book is all about. And I'm just going to say up front that there's a lot of interesting themes here. You know, the sovereignty of God, you know, appointing a fish to come and swallow Jonah. That's, that's an incredible act of sovereignty on God's part. Um, there's this theme of, of insiders and outsiders, God's people versus the Gentiles, and, the, and especially religious people versus wicked people out there. And um, the way this book toys with that is interesting and compelling and convicting. And then finally, and I think this is really at the heart of this book, the, the mercy of God, the compassion of God for sinners like you and me. That's at the heart of what we're going to see today and I think in the coming weeks. So today I want to talk about Jonah's run and uh, we'll have four points as I kind of run through this first chapter. And we're going to look at this chapter again next, next week. So if you think, boy, he's leaving out a lot, that's because we're going to return to the same chapter next week. But I want to look at um, Jonah's run today. And so we're going to start by looking at his call. That's the first thing I want us to notice today is the call of Jonah in verses one and two. Let me read that again. 
Um, It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Um, This is Jonah's call, and it's a kind of familiar formula that we see in other books of the Bible where the word of the Lord comes to someone. This is someone who is a prophet. God brings this message to them. He speaks to them, but he also commissions them to take the word of the Lord to God's people usually, but in this case, to another people altogether. Jonah is a prophet. Now, we know a little bit about Jonah from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verses 23 and following. You can go read more about him there, but he was a prophet around the time of 786 to 746 BC, and he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Um, He uh, prophesied around the same time as Hosea and Amos, and he was a prophet to King Jeroboam II. The first Jeroboam, you might remember, became king of the northern kingdom when the the kingdom split after King Solomon. This is Jeroboam II many years later, and he was largely an evil king that followed in the way of Jeroboam, his great-grandfather. Um, And yet we learn that Jonah counseled Jeroboam II to um, advance on Syria and reclaim some of the lands that Solomon had initially gotten hold of that were later lost. And because of the Assyrian Empire and their attacks of Syria, Syria had become weak. And so Jonah counseled Jeroboam and he went up and took back some of the cities in Syria uh, and reclaimed them for Israel. So Jonah was a prophet to a wicked king in the northern rebellious kingdom and actually counseled them to to take land back over, and it was successful. Jonah was an insider. He was uh, pro-Israel. He was a nationalist. Um, He was very close to power and had not uh, allegedly, at least it seems, done a lot to come against the wickedness of Jeroboam. And yet he receives this call to arise, to get up, and to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, this great empire that we learned a lot about when we studied Isaiah, which comes a little bit later. But um, even at this time, Assyria, even though they weren't pressing in as much and as much of a threat to Jerusalem and Judea and Israel, it was still a, a regional threat that everyone was aware of. They had been very powerful, kind of waned in power a little bit. But Nineveh was the capital of this empire, and it was, uh, God calls it a great city. It's, it's large, it's powerful. It's an incredible achievement. It's a cultural center. And Jonah was to go to the city and to call out against it and to warn them of coming judgment. And the reason for that is that God says their evil had come up before him. Uh, What evil is he talking about? Well, you can read about the evil of the Assyrian Empire. um, They were a brutal people. And I mentioned that when we went through Isaiah. They were incredibly brutal. They impaled their captives They often wore necklaces of the skulls of the enemies they had defeated. They subjugated people. They um, did horrible things to women. Uh, And honestly, you don't have to look far today in the news to get a sort of picture of the brutality that came with with this sort of warfare under the Assyrian Empire. Um, And this this gone on long enough that God said, I'm going to bring judgment. The evil has gotten so bad, it's reached a certain point that I'm going to put an end to this city. So go and warn them that that judgment is coming. Now, 
warnings in the Bible from prophets always come with a sort of implicit invitation to repent and for that disaster, that judgment to be averted. And so Jonah um, is, is called to go and warn them. And there's a possibility that they would repent and God would relent of that disaster. And we'll see how that plays out in Jonah's response in a moment. But you have to think for a second about the calling that Jonah is being given here. He's being called to go to a, an incredibly wicked people who are enemies of God's people and to go to the heart of their civilization and to walk around telling them that God is going to destroy them. Now that, friends, is an incredibly dangerous mission. Nobody likes to be told that their civilization, their culture, their nation is wicked and God's going to put an end to it. Nobody wants to hear that. And if you've got all the power in the world and some nobody from some backwater nation comes and tells you that you're evil, what do you think is going to happen to that sort of guy? It's an incredibly dangerous call that God gives him. And beyond that, it was also scandalous and outrageous. If you're Jonah and you have this sense of you being God's people and you saw victory under Jeroboam expanding your nation's territory and then God says to go to this incredibly wicked nation that is a threat to your country and to warn them so that there might be relent from disaster, um, there would be outrage. He was not happy about this call at all. Uh, It was incredibly undesirable to consider what God might do if he went and preached to this people. And so um, it runs against everything Jonah wants. The call that God had put on his life runs against everything that Jonah wants. And I want us to just pause on and, and reflect on that for a moment because all of us, we're not all like Jonah, we're not all prophets, but all of us are called by God in various ways. We're all called by God to do things we often don't like to do, right? Jonah was a prophet, he had a unique calling, uh, but he was not so unlike us that we can't see ourselves in him, right? Um, We aren't going to speak the very words of God to other people, but God calls each of us into various vocations. In fact, that word literally means callings. We all have different vocations, different assignments or tasks or roles or missions or even relationships and work that God gives to us and calls us to carry them out faithfully. We've all been called to live in particular ways with the people and with the places that God has put us. So in your life, as you think about what are my callings, it, you know, start with your family and the relationships around you, friendships, and think of all the, the brokenness and all the beauty of those relationships and, uh, and, can, and just reflect on the fact that God has sent you to be present in those, to love those people. And, all, and, and to carry out all the various responsibilities that come with that role, right? Whether you're a parent or you're a child or it's your church community or it's your neighbors or your friends or coworkers. These are people that God has called you to live in relationship with. All of us have bodies, of course. And our bodies come with particular callings as well. Our bodies actually norm. They shape what God has called us to live like. And so whether we're men or women or Uh, whether we've got injuries and hardships and pain that we deal with, or we have special abilities um, because of our body, whatever's going on in your body, that's a calling of God in your life to live faithfully in that body and to to live in a way that honors God and carries out his purposes in in the world. Um, Your work certainly is a calling. Whatever work you have, whether it's staying at home and raising children 
or um, it's in retirement and you're managing all that um, you've been given over the course of your life and you're um, helping out in various relationships around you or it's your career uh, or maybe it's just a job you have temporarily to make some money, whatever it might be, the work that you have, all the joy, all the frustration that goes along with that, um, that's a calling that God has put on your life. And the reality is all of our callings in in all those different areas, um, they all involve things that we don't like, don't they? There are things about our calling that we wish um, was not so. And we want to avoid what God has called us to do. And um, like Jonah, they all come with um, threats to our safety or comfort or maybe our pride of self, our sense of who we are, that they somehow threaten our sense of who we see ourselves as being. Or maybe they're um, in some ways threats to our dreams and our hopes that we have for the future. Whatever it might be, our callings contain things that we don't like. The people that we're called to love, they hurt us or they're difficult. The work that we're given it has frustration built into it. The bodies that we have require discipline and self-control and maybe they have constant pain. The relationships that we're in require us to be maybe exposed and vulnerable to other people and that's a threat to our safety. Whatever it might be, all of our callings contain elements that are unpleasant at, at minimum. And maybe, in some ways, horrifying at most. And so, what I want us to just reflect on today is that Scripture teaches us that all of us have been created by God and appointed to a particular set of callings. And like Jonah, that that involves unpleasant things. But there's good news in this, too, that um, because we've been called by God, all of us can say we belong to God in some sense. Our calling reflects the fact that our lives belong to God. He made us. We're stewards of the lives we've been given. Our identities are something that we've received from God. They're not things that we create. And um, we have a certain nature that that is built into us. We can't just become whatever we like. Life has a, a structure and our lives are to be aimed at particular ends. This gives us incredible clarity in many ways, about who we're to be. We don't have to live in the chaos and confusion of saying, I've got to make my life whatever I want it to be. No, God sets boundaries and limits on us. And that's what gives us our responsibility and purpose in our work, in our relationships, our families. And all of these things are meaningful. And furthermore, because we belong to God, um, that means we're made to know God and be known by God in love in the midst of all those callings. We're made to know and be known by other people and to live in those callings with love towards them. And we're made to work and create and cultivate and build and discover and prosper in God's world. All of that is grounded in the fact that all of us have a calling in this life. Made by God, belonging to him, we are called to particular things. Now, all that said, like Jonah, um, we, we all tend to reject our callings, don't we? And that's the next thing I want us to see is how Jonah runs from his calling in verse 3. And I think this is something we can all identify with as well. In verse 3, it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah has been given a calling and he flees. He runs. He flees God's calling, but it also tells us he's not just fleeing his calling, he's fleeing the very presence of the Lord, right? Israel is where God dwells with his people at this time. 
And so Jonah's not just saying, I'm not going to do that. He could have stayed there and rejected his calling, but he doesn't do that. He rejects his calling and he actually runs from the presence of the Lord. And ironically, in doing this, he becomes exactly like the Assyrians. The whole reason that God is announcing judgment to them and is that their wickedness is a fundamental rejection of the calling of God on their lives to live lives of love and prosperity. And Jonah is becoming just like them. He's rejecting his calling and he's running away. Now, this tells us two things. First, Jonah is fleeing God's call by doing the exact opposite of what he's supposed to be doing. Look at the passage and you'll, you'll notice, and I've kind of emphasized the word as I'm reading it, the word down, right? God calls Jonah to arise. Jonah, it says, several times goes down, multiple places in our text. He's running down away from the presence of God. He's supposed to go Um, east to Nineveh, he runs west to Tarshish, which is in present-day Spain. He's supposed to travel over the land to get to Nineveh. He gets on a boat and goes on the sea the other direction. He's supposed to go to this great city, this sort of center of civilization at the time. He runs to this outskirts of the known world at that time for Israelites. He's doing the exact opposite of what he's supposed to do. He completely avoids the call that God has placed on his life. And we learn later in the book that the reason he did this is because he knew that God is merciful. He knew that God was merciful. He's like, I know what kind of God you are. You're a merciful God. And I didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach because I knew that you might relent and not bring judgment. He ran from his calling because his self-righteous pride in being an Israelite being one of the good guys, led him to hate his enemy to such a degree that he did not want to see disaster um, be averted for them. He was afraid for the future of Israel and the threat that Assyria was. And if God was uh, merciful to them, then that would be bad for him and for his people. And so his pride about his insider status as, as part of God's covenant people meant that he had this major superiority complex and he had this deep animosity for non-Israelites and especially for the Assyrians. And so he did not want to see God's mercy go to them. Good news for them, he thought, was bad news for him. But Jonah doesn't just forsake his calling. We see secondly that Jonah is avoiding God himself. Jonah did not just avoid his call. He didn't just leave Um, and say, well, he didn't just ignore God. He actually left Israel altogether. He could have stayed there, but he's like, I can't be in the presence of God and, and reject this calling. And so he fled, he ran, he went down. He was told to arise, he goes down. And it's uh, all throughout our passage. He, He went down to Joppa. He went down into a ship. He went down, it says later, into the very bottom of a ship. And then finally, we see he goes down into the depths of the water. He is going as far away from the presence of God as he knows how to do. Now, I want us to see here today that all of us not only have a calling on our life, but all of us flee and run from our callings from God. We all do this. We all flee from our callings in various ways, whether it's our work, whether we, uh, we, we constantly change jobs and just move on, or we neglect our responsibilities, or maybe we procrastinate, or we constantly look at screens um, to to entertain us instead of focusing on what we're supposed to be doing, or maybe we're running off playing. I don't know. We all avoid our work in a, in a lot of ways. Relationships is a place we, we forsake our calling all the time. Um, you know, I talk to you, and I know, I know in my life, like, 
People are hard. Family is hard, isn't it? And we've got relationships and dynamics where it just feels stuck and there's no way out of it. And the easiest thing to do is just say it's all on that person or I'm just going to get out of here. And we're called to hang in there with people and learn to relate to them and love and work through things. And we just want to run away. Or, or maybe we just don't want to be seen by other people. It's too vulnerable. It's too dangerous. People can hurt us. And so it's easier to keep our distance because then nobody can hurt us. That's forsaking our calling in our relationships as well. Uh, maybe it's uh, forsaking our calling to a certain place. Um, we're always on the move. We're always looking at making moves in order to um, increase our life in some way, uh, take a new job, make new relationships where we won't have all those problems. Whatever it might be, we run, we run, we run, right? And we do this with our bodies. We have a calling in our bodies and we run from that too. We, we medicate, we self-medicate in all sorts of ways to avoid the pain of our bodies and the, and the things that we're called to. We don't discipline ourselves. We hide. There's, there's numerous ways. The point is all of us flee from our callings, but in a deeper sense, all of us flee from God himself, don't we? I mean, there's a lot of ways we do this. Uh, one obvious way is we just, um, we, we are uncomfortable with prayer, right? I mean, do you know that feeling when um, you're not, you're not feeling like you're pursuing what God has called you to do and you just can't bring yourself to pray because then you're, you're sort of attending to the, to the one who has called you to something and you don't want to face it. And it's hard to pray. Um, and, you know, this plays out in other ways too. And I feel this as a pastor because in some ways I represent God to people. It's just the nature of the office. I'm not God, but I represent God to people. And so when people are avoiding God, sometimes that means they start avoiding me. Or maybe it's just the church as a whole. The church is where God dwells and, and people know that. And you come into this place and you're confronted with God and you're running. And so you don't even want to be around the church anymore or other Christians generally. Or finally, just people because people bear God's image. And so we run from all these things and we hide. Maybe you see this in other people, but I, I think um, if we are honest, all of us do this in various ways. Now, fundamentally, friends, we're called to mature. That's, that's, that's a calling all of us have. We are called to mature. We're not just called to obey. And I think that's something Christian circles get wrong a lot. You know, God gives all these commands, just do them. But what God is after in us is to mature, to grow up into what he's like. That's the calling that all of us are really running from. That's what's underneath all these runnings that we do, all this fleeing is a refusal to grow up into what God is calling us to be and making us by his spirit. Maturity is largely related to facing and enduring different kinds of pain, to delaying gratification, to enduring stress. Ask anybody who does developmental psychology, think about it as parents, think about your own life, Maturity is largely related to sticking in there and hanging with and dealing with stress and pain, delaying gratification. It's through those things that God and that uh, all people are forged into maturity. And it's hard to mature. We run from this calling all the time. We run from the truth. This is a big part of running from, from maturity. We run from the truth. We don't tell the truth about ourselves. We don't tell the truth about the world. We describe it in the way we want it to be rather than the way it really is. We run from pain. We run from exposure, from, humili from humiliation, from shame. We run from vulnerability, from weakness, from the lack of control. We run from all of those things. And yet it's in those very places that God calls us because that's where maturing takes place. 
That's where wisdom and knowledge and character and strength and skill and power all are developed, and yet we are running from that. And yet, friends, God loves us still. God doesn't leave us to ourselves, fortunately. And that's the third thing that I want us to see today as we look at the storm. In, in verse 4, and I'm not going to read um, a lot of the rest of the passage again, but in verse 4, um, this kind of sets up the, the narrative for the rest of the chapter. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, this is a very active word that's used there, that the Lord hurls the wind on the sea. And you see that same word being used of, of the sailors later on as well. There's this repetition of that term. But the Lord actively hurls this great wind on the sea, and it suggests his divine intervention in a direct way. Now, storms are totally normal, right? That's a part of life, but there seems to be something extra about this storm, and the sailors recognize that it's not a normal storm. Uh, They start to discern somebody has angered God because this is not the, the typical storm we've ever seen. And uh, they go through a number of things. Finally, they cast lots. It falls to Jonah. That's a, sort of a way of, it's like rolling dice or picking straws or picking names out of a hat, something like that. And it's, it falls to Jonah. So they go, okay, through God's providence, he's orchestrated that your name showed up. That means we know you're the problem here. What's going on? Who are you? And Jonah acknowledges that he is running from God's presence. And, uh, and they, they aren't satisfied with that. They don't just say, okay, let's kill this guy. They still try to row and beat the storm and get back because they don't want to end his life. But finally, Jonah says, you got to throw me over. And they toss Jonah into the sea. Now, what I want us to see here is that God often sends storms to get our attention. God often sends storms to get our attention so that we stop fleeing his call on our life so that we'll return into his presence. Now, um, not every storm, and this needs to be said, not every storm is because of our sin and our running, okay? So uh, please hear that loud and clear today. I want to be very explicit that you may be going through things that have nothing to do with you running from God. Uh, It's just part of the brokenness of the world. It's part of uh, other people's sin against you. So don't hear me as saying that every storm is your fault, or it's God's coming after you and you've got to figure out what sin you've committed that's led to this. However, the Bible does say many storms, some of our storms, come from the fact that God is seeking to get our attention. Now, how do you evaluate if the storm you're going through is God trying to get your attention or it's just the brokenness of the world and other people? Well, one good sign that um, it's not your own sin is that you, you go to God with the storm you're in. If you can come to him and pray and seek his face and worship with his people and you're not running from his presence, then this is probably a normal storm in life. But if the storm you're going through is also connected to the fact that you don't want to go to God's presence, then that might be a good sign that God's giving you this storm so that you'll wake up and you'll come to him and you'll return to him. And so if you find yourself in a storm today, whatever that might be, you know, metaphorically, then, um, then the, the answer is to not say, well, I, you know, I wonder if this is my sin or not, is to go to God, to ask him directly, to humble yourself, to meditate on his word and to um, have confidence in God's love for you. And if you, can, if you can do that, then this is just a normal storm of life. But if you have a hard time doing that, then there may need to be repentance and, 
And you probably know what you're running from. I probably don't even have to tell you. In reality, even when God seeks to get our attention by sending storms into our lives, we don't always turn around. And often we run even harder. And that's exactly what Jonah does here. God sends the storm to get his attention, and yet he continues to go down, away from God once again, this time despairing into the very depths of the sea. And that's the final thing I want us uh, to see today is the depths. In verses 15 through 17, we read this. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And verse 17, it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What's interesting here is that Jonah is able to acknowledge that he is running. He knows that's what he's doing. He takes a bit of responsibility for the storm. He acknowledges it's because of him. He is telling the truth up to a point, but he refuses to actually reckon with that truth and do something about it. And so he, he basically says, just throw me overboard. He doesn't repent He doesn't go to God and pray and ask him to calm the storm. He says, take my life, basically. This is despairing to the point of death. And friends, um, some of you know what this is like. You've been running from God and you've got the storms of life. And rather than turn around, you just go even further into the depths of despair. Uh, And basically you say, I'd rather die than face God and the calling he's put on my life. And so the, the sailors here, they are afraid to do this, but eventually they do toss him. And basically, we we have this picture of Jonah going down into the depths. And friends, in the Bible, the sea and the depths of the sea and and Sheol, that's about as far from the presence of God as you can get, right? God is up in the highest heaven, so to speak. He's been going down, 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 down as far as he can possibly get. But the story tells us he actually can't get away from God. Even in the cold, in the lightless depths, God is there. And there's a, there's a word that tells us that because it says that God appointed a fish. Even down into the depths of the ocean. I mean, have you ever gone really far underwater and uh, it, the light starts to get less bright and it starts to get dark down there? It is scary and it's cold and it's, you can't see very well. I mean, I used to swim um, in this lake that we lived by growing up and I got these flippers one time and I would swim down like 30 feet and it would be like under this dock. And it was just like, it was like you were in a tomb. And, um, and we see that even there, God is present. In the depths, as far away as Jonah can possibly get from God, we find that God's mercy has run ahead of Jonah and is still there. Jonah should have known this. He should have known that you can't outrun God's mercy. Right? It's, it's all over scripture. It's there in the Psalms. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And here's what we need to hear about this this morning and what I want you to hear. Wherever you are today in your own life, in your own journey, God's mercy is already there ahead of you. You can't avoid God's presence. You can't outrun God's mercy. It's always on offer to you and works through the very things you are doing to avoid God. Now, how is that possible? I mean, why is there, 
Why is there mercy from God there? It's because that is who God is. Jonah even tells us this later in the story when he quotes Exodus 34. Not all of it, but some of it. He quotes, um, who is God? A gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's like, that's who God is. That's why there's mercy even there. But we know more of the story of who God is because, um, because of Jesus, because of God the Son, who lived and reigned in the very presence of God eternally. And what did he do? It says he came down. He came down to us, not to avoid God's call on his life, but to fulfill his call. He came down to embrace a life of pain and rejection and humiliation and vulnerability and stress and tension and animosity and hard work. All of these things that are wrapped up in our callings today. He embraced all of that and he lived with incredible compassion on all those who are facing all sorts of storms in their lives. Some in their own making and some because of the brokenness of the world. And he, it says, died on the cross and descended into the lower parts of the earth through his death on the cross. He gave himself up, like Jonah did, so to speak, although in an even better way, he gave himself up on the cross to save others. He wasn't despairing in his own self-absorption like Jonah was, but in love, he showed mercy to sinners who were fleeing from God. And he left the, the blessed presence of the Father to lead us out of our exile, out of our fleeing, back home to the presence of God. The one who had the power to calm storms, endured the storm of the cross so that we might be shown mercy. And that, friends, means that no matter where you are today, God's mercy is available to you if you call upon him. Whether you're a wicked outsider, so to speak, like the Ninevites, you've been running your whole life and you've done terrible things, or you're a self-righteous churchgoer who doesn't like those bad people out there, God has mercy for you. Because Jesus bore our sin and death on the cross. So I want to ask you today, where are you? Just like Joel preached last week in Genesis where God said, where are you? That's a good question for all of us. Where are you today? Are you, maybe you're in the beginning stages of running from your colleagues. Maybe it's some people you don't want to deal with anymore. You just want to blame and cut off from them. Or maybe um, it's work that you've been given that has just been so frustrating, you just want to leave it all behind. I don't know what it is. Whatever your calling is, maybe you're just running from that today. And, and I want you to hear there's mercy for you right now. Or maybe you're in a storm and your running has led to problems and challenges and suffering and pain and uh, broken relationships. And um, life is a mess and you're in that storm. And I want you to know there is mercy in that storm for you. Or maybe you are despairing and you're saying, yeah, I know the storms are my fault, but screw it. I'd rather just die. And I want to say there's mercy for you in that moment as well. Or maybe you've gone through despairing and you're stuck and you don't know what to do, but you're about as far away from God as you think you possibly can be. And I want you to hear that even there, God's mercy is available to you. You cannot outrun God's mercy because Jesus has gone all the way down into death to save you. There is always hope for anyone in any situation because God is merciful. So what do we do with this today? Well, we all need to stop and 
call out to God and ask for his mercy. That's what Jonah was supposed to tell the Ninevites. They were supposed to call out for God's mercy. You can do that right here and now. Um, And that means that you stop running from the callings God's put on your life. And if you're in a storm, it means repent and call out to be rescued. And if you're despairing, it means put your hope in God. And if you're down in the depths, trust that God can rescue you from the most bizarre circumstances in the most bizarre ways that you can imagine. So here's how I want us to end. I want you to think about your lowest point. The lowest point in your life, the darkest place you've ever been, or maybe you're there now. Maybe it's when you acted in a way you never thought you'd be able to act that way. You just never thought you'd do something like that. Or maybe um, it's that point where you're alone in the dark looking at things that bring you deep shame. Or maybe it's um, after you've blown up relationships in your life and you feel like there's no way out of it. They can't be repaired. Or maybe it's when you've said things that you know you can't take back. Whatever your darkest moment is, I want you to imagine that and then to remember that there is mercy for you even there. I want to encourage you to arise and to return to the land of the living, embracing what God has created and called you to be and trust in him.